0: What well, is it is a great privilege to, to be here with you all this morning, to worship uh, the Lord with you guys. Uh, it's is good to our souls and our hearts, just to, just to sing the praise of the Lord with you all. Um, and and you're a congregation that sings. Praise the Lord. Uh, wonderful to, to be with you guys this morning. And wonderful privilege to preach the Word of God. So this morning we'll be hearing from Judges chapter 4 through 5. Judges chapter 4 through 5. The book of Judges is probably not one uh normally have when a guest preacher comes to preach on. But we've been going through that as a church recently. And it's, the Lord has been ministering to us through it. So this sermon to come from Judges chapters 4 through 5. And we'll begin by reading just a portion of it. So we'll start in chapter 4 verse 12. And I'll read through chapter 5 verse 5. So Judges chapter 4 beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. When Cicero was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Cicero called out all his chariots, nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Cicero into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. And the Lord routed Cicero and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots in the army to Harosheth Hogoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug... And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here, say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, until it went down into the ground, while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Let us pray. Father God, we praise your name. And we thank you that you give us your word, O Lord. So so that even a story like this is you speaking. This is your word, O God. And we trust that it is for our good and for your glory. And so, God, I pray that right now in this moment, you would allow that to be displayed, God. That that I would not preach my thoughts or my words, but that you, O Lord, would empower me by your spirit to preach your word, O God. And your truth and in your love and for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, a professor of worship music at Southern Seminary wrote an article observing how the songs that Christians write and sing have changed over the years. But he wasn't talking about how the style of music has changed. He wasn't talking about the difference between playing piano and organs versus guitar and drums. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about how the words of Christian songs, the words of worship music have changed over the years. He showed how the songs and hymns of past generations, hundreds years ago, so often included lines about death and heaven. The hope we have in death because of the gospel. But, by contrast, if you turn on the, the, the radio today to uh, k or whatever uh, Christian uh, radio station might be out there, if you turn on the radio, most of the time, heaven is just absent. Especially death is just absent from most contemporary worship music today. And, and this isn't just true about the topic of heaven. The things that we sing about and praise God for are very different in many contemporary. Not all, praise the Lord, but, but in much of the worship music that's, that's written today is different than the things that, that people wrote about and sang about for generations before us. This is, uh, why it's just why it's such a joy to sing older hymns like, like we did this morning uh, with some of those songs. It's because the things that we sing about Matter, right? The words matter. And many contemporary worship songs no longer sing about uncomfortable topics like death and heaven, or suffering and trials in the Christian life, or spiritual warfare, and the reality of Satan, or perhaps most of all, the topic of God's judgment and wrath ...against sin. I mean, we've even heard stories about entire denominations... ...trying to remove lines from, from songs... ...that deal with the topics of judgment... ...and hell and wrath against sin. And yet, when we look at most of the hymns... ...sung by generations of Christians in churches... ...they sing about these very things all the, all the time. So, so why is there such a big shift? Well, there's no doubt many reasons why... ...but I think one reason is because in our modern day and age, we just don't like to talk about or think about, much less sing about, things that make us uncomfortable, do we? We like to think about things or sing about things that make us feel good, focus on happy topics. We, we don't naturally like to think about uncomfortable topics, like the topics of death, suffering, sorrow, sin, temptation, Satan, Satan. Even God's wrath and judgment against sin. They remind us of our weakness, of our guilt, of our vulnerability. They make us uncomfortable. And yet when we sing the hymns of old, they remind us that it is precisely in these uncomfortable places that we find the glory and grace of God in incredible, profound ways. It's in the uncomfortable places that God's glory shines all the more brightly. Where we are invited to come and encounter God. But when we encounter God in those places, he's often not what we expect. He works in ways that are very different from our ways. Strange ways. Surprising ways. And yet when we do, we realize that God is far greater. Far more gracious. Far more glorious than we thought before. That God is working out all things for our good. Even and especially in the unlikely, unexpected, uncomfortable places the difficult and daunting circumstances of our lives. It's precisely there, in those moments where we feel weakest and most helpless, where we encounter God's glorious strength and the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus all the more. And that's exactly what we see in our text this morning. Judges chapters 4 and 5. We see here a picture of God's glorious work of salvation for his sinful people through unlikely and surprising means. When the circumstances seem hopeless, even using the weak things of this world to do so in such a way that it results all in his glory. It shows us this with a story in chapter 4 and a song in chapter 5. Praising the Lord for for what he's done and even interpreting the story for us theologically. The story shows us how God delivers his sinful people Israel from their enemies. And yet he uses unlikely means, unlikely people to accomplish this task ending even with deception and treachery and gruesome killing. And then in chapter 5, we're given this song that praises God for his deliverance, for his salvation, making it clear that the events of this story are indeed the work of God to bring salvation for his people. Physical salvation for his people from the judgment of God against their sin. That's what's going on here. God brings the salvation precisely through the judgment and destruction of their enemies. It's a story that takes us to the uncomfortable places. Reminding us of our sin, our weakness, our neediness. But it also reminds us that God can use us and can work in our circumstances no matter how messy they may look. No matter how weak or broken or unlikely we may be. And as he does so, he displays his glory leading us to worship and praise Him for His work of salvation in our lives today. So let's just walk through this story one section at a time. We're going to see what the story says and apply it as well as we go on. So point number one, Barak doubts. We must rely on God, not ourselves or anything else. See this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Point number one, Barak doubts. We must rely on God, not ourselves or anything else. So before we launch into our text today, we need to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on. So if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, it's a book that shows the spiritual decline, the the spiritual and moral decline of Israel as they progressively spiral downward and downward into further and more and more sin. We see this pattern repeated throughout the book like this. It happens over and over again. First, Israel sins. Then, God brings judgment against Israel for their sin, letting them be oppressed by their enemies. And then next, Israel finally cries out to God for help. And then finally, God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who is supposed to come and, and defeat the enemies and lead the people back to God, and God brings deliverance, safety for His people. But after the judge dies, Israel goes right back into sin again. And the pattern repeats. And it doesn't just repeat, but it gets worse. ...and worse and worse each time. The sin gets worse. The oppression gets worse. Even the judges get worse and worse over time. And that's where our story starts this morning. And the third time this pattern happens... ...in chapter 4, verse 1. The pattern starts over again. And the people of Israel... Verse, ...chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel... ...again did what was evil... ...in the sight of the Lord... ...after Ehud, the last judge, died. And so... God punishes Israel again in verses 2 and 3, allowing their enemies, the Canaanites, to oppress them as a sign of God's judgment against their sin and idolatry. Israel is in need of being saved from the wrath of God against their sin through the oppression of their enemies once more. And so the pattern continues. They cry out to the Lord for help. But right where we expect to see God raising up the next deliverer to come and defeat Israel's enemies, instead, we see something else first. Not a warrior, but a woman. Deborah, the prophetess. We're told that she was judging Israel at that time. Yet we're not told that God raised her up as a deliverer. In fact, the next few verses that follow, what we see is that actually someone else is supposed to be the deliverer. A man named Barak. And it's actually confirmed for us in later passages of the Bible, like 1 Samuel chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. You might know that as the Hall of Faith passage from Hebrews. Both those places give us lists of judges. And they don't mention Deborah, they mention Barak. He's the one that's pictured as the judge, the deliverer here. Barak's mentioned each time. But there's one problem we see in the story. Barak hesitates. He doubts God here. We see this in verse 6. So Deborah summons Barak and says, verse 6, chapter 4, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops. And I will give him into your hand. So, So I think we should read this as a rebuke. Where she's asking Barak, didn't God command you to gather your troops and go to war to save Israel? Well, what are you waiting for? But Barak, this military leader who's called to save Israel, doesn't give the brave, honorable response we expect. He's heard his marching orders, right? God is clear. Go fight these bad guys. I will give them into your hand. I will give you victory. I'll save you. But Barak doesn't say, okay, I'll do it. Instead, he gives a cowardly response. Barak said to her in verse 8, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Barak hesitates. He says, no, he will not obey God on the Lord's terms, but will only obey God on his terms, if Deborah comes with him. Now, why does he respond that way? Well, what's going on here is that Barak is scared to obey because he doubts that God will deliver on his promises. You see, Barak knows that the Canaanite army is a far superior military force, and that the Israelite army is not strong enough to beat them. We see this in verse 3. If we back up for a second, go right back up to verse 3, we're told that Sisera, this commander who has harshly oppressed Israel, has 900 chariots of iron. Okay, so now we we might think at first that this means that Barak's army of 10,000 will easily have them outnumbered. That's not the case at all. So the Canaanites were uh, they were more technologically advanced. They had iron weapons and iron chariots. Israel didn't know how to make iron weapons and iron chariots yet. Meaning the Canaanites were more technologically advanced. They had a far superior military force. So when we read chariots of iron here, it's, it, we it should basically kind of think of the, the modern equivalent of, of tanks, right? It's the, the iron chariots are like the ancient equivalent of, of modern tanks, so to speak. So Israel doesn't have tanks, right? So they can throw a bunch of infantrymen at an army of tanks coming for them. It's, it's not going to bode well, right? Clearly, Israel is outgunned. And furthermore, we're told later in verse 13... ...that Sisera has a whole army of, of men in addition to these chariots. So Israel's outmatched Sisera's army is far superior... ...and Barak knows it. And it wasn't just Barak who doubted God out of fear and a lack of faith. Later in chapter 5... Verses 15 through 18, Deborah Deborah mentions that there were several tribes of Israel who did not go to war to fight off their enemies. But instead just stayed home. Reuben and Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan with their sheep. Dan and Asher stayed at the sea. Chapter 5, 16 and 17. But then by contrast, in verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali are praised for risking their lives in battle. So Barak looks at his odds. And he thinks, there's no way we can win this battle. But that's because he's only looking at it from a human perspective. But instead, he should be looking at it from a, 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 the, the perspective of faith. After all, God had already told him that he promised he would deliver Cicero's army into Barak's hand. But instead of trusting God, he puts confidence in worldly things, relies on, on human things, even wanting Deborah to come along like some kind of good luck charm. So Deborah agrees to go with him, but don't miss the rebuke that we see here in verse 9. So chapter 4, verse 9. This is how Deborah responds. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So Barak is trusting in this human perspective rather than God. He hesitates, he fears, he disobeys because he doesn't trust God here. And so I think we, we're meant to pause and ask ourselves, right? All throughout Judges, this whole book is given to us as a warning against the, the effects of sin as it has on, on Israel as they become more and more and more like these pagan nations around them. So I think we're meant to pause here and see what's going on in Barak. And we're meant to ask ourselves, do we see this in ourselves? Have you ever found yourself in Barak's shoes before? Have you ever known what the right thing to do was? Known what God was commanding you to do, but then made excuses for why you couldn't obey? Maybe you thought, I can't do that. I can't obey the Lord in this way. It's too costly. It's too dangerous. I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart or gifted or competent enough. I'm not. I'm just not good or godly enough to do what the Bible says I should do. That's for those, those elite Christians, right? I, I just can't do it. When we start to think that way, to say that we're just too weak... Just not good enough to obey God. We, we might think we're being humble, but we're not. In actuality, we're just making excuses. Trying to justify our own disobedience. What it really reveals is that we are putting our confidence in ourselves rather than the Lord. When we learn from the Bible that God commands us to do something. Whether we learn that something we're doing is a sin, we need to repent from it. Or that we're called to, to have faith, to trust in Jesus, to be baptized, to join a church... Or to love others sacrificially, to forgive our enemies, to share the gospel with other people. Or even just to trust God in seasons of suffering and sorrow. And when we know what God tells us to do, and then just make excuses for why we just can't obey and trust God yet. Maybe, maybe I'll do it later, when I have all my ducks in a row. What it really reveals is a lack of faith in our hearts. It shows that we're looking to our own strength, rather than relying on the strength of God. And God calls us to rely on Him. To obey in His strength, not ours. The answer isn't believe in yourself more. Just have more self-confidence now. That'll never do it. That just leads to more fear, more failure. Because we will inevitably reach the end of ourselves. The point where we just can't do it on our own. No, the answer is not believe in yourself. The answer is stop believing in yourself and start believing in God. And we can always trust God because God always delivers on His promises. Which leads us to point number two. God delivers. We see that God delivers. God works through unlikely means. We see this in the rest of chapter 4, 11 through 24. So despite Barak's lack of faith and hesitation to obey, God graciously uses him anyways. As the story continues, we see that God can indeed deliver his people, even when outnumbered. Even using a man who does not obey right away, but hesitates, even using other weak and unlikely things of this world to bring about his purposes. So eventually, Barak goes up to battle. Deborah's going with him. He gathers his army. But then in verse 11, all of a sudden, the scene abruptly cuts away to a different scene to tell us about this family of Heber the Kenite, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, a non-Jew who separated from his kinsmen and moved his family up north, closer to where the Canaanite king, the enemy, Lives. So at first, we may think, oh, what does this? this moving story about this family have to do with anything? But it's actually a very clever bit of foreshadowing. See, if this were a movie that we were watching, it would go something like this. We see this the, the main characters, Brock and Deborah, they're gathering together this army. It's this dramatic, climactic moment, right? They have this tense, dramatic conversation. Finally, he agrees. They're gathering all the people together. And all of a sudden, the scene breaks. Right? The camera cuts to a, to a little countryside with not much going on, a small little cluster of tents there in the countryside, a little family. Maybe the, uh, maybe the movie just kind of zooms in, right? The camera zooms in. And we, and we just start to see the silhouette of Heber's wife, J.L. And then the scene cuts away again. It changes, leaving us in suspense. But we, we know how movies work, right? We know how stories work. We're, we're left wondering, okay, somehow this is going to come back and intersect with our stories, foreshadowing. And so the story ...cuts back and it picks up speed... ...back with Barak and his army. So in verses 12 through 16... ...which you read earlier... ...the armies clash and go to war. And miraculously... ...Israel... ...though outnumbered, outgunned, outmatched... ...they win. But it's clear here... ...that this is the Lord's victory. Verse 15 says... ...and the Lord routed Sisera... ...and all his chariots and all his army... ...before Barak by the edge of the sword. And then... Deborah's song in chapter 5, so just flip over to chapter 5, it makes this point even more explicit. This is a story of God's gracious salvation. The song begins in chapter 5 verses 2 through 5, praising the Lord for marching out and giving Israel this victory, but it does so by recognizing the Lord did so through using means. It uses, God uses means, even human means and other means to bring about His will. So even there, this verse which you read earlier, it tells us that the part of how God came and brought salvation is that He made it rain. The heavens dropped. just yes, the clouds dropped water. Keep that in your mind. We'll come back to it. And the rest of the song, verses 6 through 18, recognizes all these other different means that God uses to bring about this victory. He uses Deborah. She he says, she, she says he, God raised me up like a mother in Israel. He uses Barak and the army of Israel. And then we get a few more details about how God does this directly from the song in chapter 5, 20 through 21. So chapter 5, skip down to verses 20 through 21. It says this, From heaven the stars fall. From their courses they fall against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So torrent means river. It's the river Kishon. So with, with poetic language, this is telling us that God, right, who, who sits in the heavens where the stars are, God directly got involved in the battle. God fought against Sisera. Even by sending a sudden rainstorm, right? So, so he says God made the heavens drop water. We're told that the, this ancient Corinth, Tishon, swept them away. God makes this sudden rainstorm come upon the battle. The the river floods. And so now, now remember, why was Sisera's army so so much more powerful militarily? Well, they had all these iron chariots, right? Well, what happens with chariot wheels... In the mud. Or in the floodwaters. It doesn't work very well. So God causes this, this rainstorm to come. There's mud everywhere. There's water everywhere. What Cicero is relying on fails. It doesn't work. What the, was their advantage now is gone. God has swept it away. And then God miraculously delivers the enemy army into Israel's hand, into Barak's hand, overflowing the river, up into the enemy chariots. God fights for his people, just as he promised. And the story doesn't end there. In verses 17 through 21, Sisera escapes on foot. So we have this, this chase scene now. It's a dramatic story. Now, Barak's chasing after Sisera. We can imagine it's in the rain, right, slipping and sliding in the mud. And Sisera comes to that little cluster of tents that we saw out in the countryside earlier. He comes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. They have a peace treaty with Sisera. They have a peace treaty with the Canaanites. And so Jael invites Sisera into her tent, agrees to help him. Even gives him milk when he asks for water. It's like she gives him even better than he asked. She gives him milk. She covers him with a rug. But then, when he falls asleep, she grabs a mallet and a tent peg, and literally nails his head into the ground, killing him. And the story ends in verses twenty-three to twenty-four with Barak finishing the job, defeating King Jabin, and destroying their Canaanite enemies until the Lord gives them peace. The Lord delivered Israel from their enemies, delivered Sisera into the hands of a woman, Jael, just like you promised. So this picture of God's deliverance has a very encouraging application for us today. It shows us that God can indeed use whatever instruments he, he wants to in his hand, even us, or even the weak and broken and messy things of this world, to bring about his purposes. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God uses the, the weak and foolish, to paraphrase Paul, He uses the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the strong and the wise. So just like God uses fearful Barak, just like He used the surprising circumstances of Jael, the most unlikely participant on that battlefield, just like God suddenly brings a rainstorm so God can use us, no matter how Weak or broken or messy we may be. God can use all the, the circumstances of our life, no matter how insignificant they may seem at first. It's not about how strong or competent or powerful or gifted or godly or, or wise we may think we are or are not. It's all about the Lord using us in a way that reveals not our glory, not our strength, but the Lord's glory. That's the point. That's why God loves to use the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the strong and the wise. God loves to use weak and broken vessels like you and me to make it very clear it's not us. It's His glory. And that should encourage us. When we are weak, then we are strong. When we are aware that we can't save ourselves but trust in God, that is where strength comes from. Our strength doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. God. It's the strength of the Lord that we need and that we rely on. God isn't going to abandon you in your moments of weakness and failure. In fact, God often brings us into those moments precisely so that He will get the glory and not us. So that means we simply need to acknowledge our weakness, our brokenness, and have faith in the Lord, trusting Him to work in us and even through us. No matter how weak and frail you may be, no matter how broken or messy we may be or may think we are, no matter how impossible your circumstances may seem, if you're a Christian, then God is using all these things. Every detail of your life, every, every one of your circumstances, even the unlikely details that seem insignificant or uncomfortable to you, God is using them all to work out His great plan of redemption and salvation in your life. This isn't just me saying that. God has promised that in His Word, Romans 8, 28, that He's going to work out all things together for our good. Not what we think is good, but what is truly good and best for his people. If you're a Christian, God promises to work in all of your circumstances to bring about your spiritual good and salvation. And so, they should call us to lift our eyes to the Lord. To draw near to him in those uncomfortable moments of life. The Lord will be with you, especially in your moments of weakness. God loves to do this for us. And as he does so, it results in the Lord's glory. Which brings us to our final point. Point number three. Deborah's song. Praise the Lord for bringing salvation through judgment. We see this in chapter five. Praise the Lord for bringing salvation through judgment. So after the, after the battle, Deborah and Barak break out into song. Chapter five. This song unashamedly attributes this victory to the Lord. Praising his glory for saving and delivering his people Israel from their enemies, this song is a praise song, a song of worship. And yet, the way they praise God here may take us by surprise. It's not exactly a, a feel-good worship song. It praises God for saving his people through the judgment and destruction of their enemies. So, listen to verses 24 through 27. You so say, you flip to the end of chapter five, just before the end. See verses 24 through 27. They say this. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand into the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. As we hear this song of praise, my guess is that none of us are thinking, man, I wish we could sing that next Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, the way this story ended, we have to admit it's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? It ends with J.L. deceiving Sisera, breaking their peace treaty, lying to him, driving a nail through his head while he sleeps. Not exactly a picture of hospitality. And so the story's ending, it's already a bit uncomfortable enough, and now are they really praising God for it? Are they singing about it? Sure enough, that's exactly what they do. The song continues, verses 28 through 30, in a way that is probably even more uncomfortable for us. They start mocking Sisera's mom. Out of the window she peers, verse 28 through 30, Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice, Why is the chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? In other words, we see this picture of of Sisera's mom, the man that Jael killed. The mom is worried about her son's safety, worried that he hasn't come home yet. Now at first, we might find this jarring, even alarming, that this praise song to God is mocking the sorrow of this woman. But as it continues, we see clearly we should not feel any sorrow or pity on her behalf. Verses 29 through 30 say this, Her wisest princess's answer, indeed she answers herself, Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed material embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. In other words, Sisera's mother is is worried about her son's safety. And then she says, you know what? I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure he's okay. He's probably just out ripping women and pillaging the countryside. Probably just out killing more Israelites and taking all their plunder so I'll have some nice clothes to put around my neck. What we're supposed to see here is that Sisera... And his mother and all these Canaan enemies, they are wicked, evil people who are oppressing the Israelites, doing evil, wicked, unspeakable things. We're not supposed to feel sorry for them. We're supposed to see that they received just judgment from God. And that Deborah rejoices in their downfall because she recognizes that as God judges and destroys these enemies, he's at the very same time delivering and saving his people Israel from their oppression. We see this clearly in the last verse of the passage. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his mind. And the land had rest for forty years. This conclusion makes clear that this song is praising God for delivering his people from the wickedness, injustice, and oppression of their enemies... It's praising God for bringing salvation to his people through the judgment and destruction of their enemies. The Bible makes clear over and over and over again, there is no true salvation without judgment. They always go hand in hand. There is no true peace while the enemy continues to oppress and attack. And this is just as true for us today. But here's the key thing for us to recognize as we seek to apply this passage to ourselves today. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our greatest enemies that we need to be delivered from are sin and Satan and death and all the effects of sin. Ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God in the Garden of Eden so long ago, Ever since that moment, the world has been broken by sin. All humanity enslaved to sin. Our world filled with evil and sorrow and pain and injustice. Even our own hearts filled with sin and evil. Right? Satan reigns in the world. Sin reigns in humanity. And death comes to us all. And yet, right after that first sin, God promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, that the offspring of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. Would crush the head of Satan, defeating our ancient foe, just like Jael here crushes the head of Cicero. And all of this points forward to when Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, came. And on the cross, he crushed the head of Satan. In his death, Christ conquered over Satan. Christ conquered over our enemies. In fact, Christ conquered over our greatest enemy. Ourselves, our own sin, our own guilt and shame. You see, the amazing thing is, when Christ went to the cross to conquer over his enemies, we were included on that list. We were enemies of God, and yet Christ died for us even while we were his enemies, shedding his blood in our place to deliver us from our sin and the wrath of God we deserve. To deliver us from the tyranny of Satan, even to deliver us from all the consequences of sin in this broken world, even death. Yes, sin and Satan and death still ravage our broken world. You turn on the news, you'll see them. You look in the mirror, we'll see sin. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has dealt the mortal blow. And that one day, when Jesus comes back, he's going to put all of these enemies under his feet once and for all. Even death, it will be no more. Satan will no longer lie, or deceive, or attack, or tempt, or accuse us. Sin will be no more at all, nor any of its effects. Even sinners will be no more. Now that's a problem, right? Because that includes me and you. We're all sinners, and yet there will be a day when sinners are no more. All evildoers will be dealt with once and for all in one of two ways. Either we will be cast into eternal judgment and hell, which we all deserve. Or, if we repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation, we will be forgiven. And raised to live sinless lives in paradise with God forever. Where sin will be no more, not even inside of us. We will be delivered from sin and all of its consequences. We will no longer be plagued by suffering and sorrow and injustice or the evil actions of other people. We will have genuine salvation when and only when every single one of our enemies will be crushed under the feet of King Jesus. And that day is surely coming. Because Christ has already won the victory on the cross. And in his resurrection. Therefore, we have every reason this morning to rejoice and praise the glory of our great God. For accomplishing such a great salvation. And as we rightly recognize just how great the judgment of God is. And just how wonderful the salvation he's wrought for us. It moves us to worship and glorify the Lord. This is why we sing worship songs that that don't just make us feel good but actually remind us of these beautiful truths. They remind us of how God's goodness and glory is revealed even in the uncomfortable truths of Scripture. Even in the uncomfortable places of life, like suffering, like the reality of sin, like the spiritual battle we have with the devil and the judgment we all deserve, even in the face of death. For example, that's why we sing the song, right, It Is Well With My Soul. It teaches us to, to praise God in life no matter our circumstances. Even in sorrow and suffering. Even when Satan opposes and accuses us. Even when facing the reality of our own sin. And the coming judgment against it. right? The clouds be be rolled back like like a scroll. Even so, it is well with my soul. Even though Christ's armies are coming down, it's well with our soul. Why? Because we will be raised with him, forgiven of all of our sins. Death has no fear for us anymore. For Christ has conquered over our sin. He's coming back for us. That's why we sing Amazing Grace, right? Which ends by looking to our inevitable death, by reminding us that because of the incredible grace of the gospel, death is not the end. But we will be raised to live with the Lord in heaven forever. Or like the old hymn we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Deals with uncomfortable realities, right? The Christian life is full of opposition and spiritual enemies. Reminds us that this world, though a devil's filled, should threaten to undo us. He even calls us to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. To be willing to give up the good things of this life, even life itself. These are uncomfortable topics, aren't they? So why do we sing about them? Because it reminds us that Christ has conquered victoriously over our enemies. That he is our mighty fortress precisely because he has crushed the power of sin and Satan and death. So that if we're trusting in Christ alone, our enemies will not undo us that death will not have the final word, but that Christ has defeated our enemies on the cross in order to bring about our glorious salvation. So brothers and sisters, as we close, no matter how impossible or daunting your circumstances may seem this morning, trust that God is at work and will surely use them, no matter how unlikely they may be may seem, to bring about your spiritual good, even eternal salvation. Yes, it may seem unlikely when the wicked prosper when evil seems to prevail, when Satan and sin and death rage on around us, but don't give up hope. Don't give in to fear and doubt. Don't hesitate to trust the Lord, but lift your eyes to Christ and trust in His strength, not your own. Yes, we are weak, but He is strong and He loves to use the weak things of this world, even people like you and me, to accomplish His purposes. So no matter how unlikely it may seem, from from our perspective, don't put your confidence in anything else but the Lord. Trust in Him, and he will be glorified so let us glorify him this morning in our songs as we sing and as we're going to come to the table and even every day of the week let us live our lives as a song of praise to the Lord but this salvation that we sing about is only for you if you repent from our sin from your sin as God's enemy and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone so if you're not a believer this morning then God's judgment against His enemies is not good news for you. It's bad news. Because of your sin, you are God's enemy, just like all of us were apart from Christ. You face judgment. but The good news is you don't have to. You don't have to be God's enemy. You can surrender to Christ and be saved today, right now. Simply repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He lived your perfect life and in your place, died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and that though you deserve judgment... Christ already bore it for you. So that you can be forgiven and raised to eternal life simply by grace through faith in him. If you have any questions about that, you can speak with me or with BJ or any of the, of the elders of the church. I'm sure any one of us would be more than happy to speak with you. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for your glorious salvation that you brought for us in christ thank you lord for even loving us so much to destroy our enemies even our own sin so that through your judgment we might have true salvation to live with you forever thank you lord that christ bore your wrath for our sin on the cross and i pray that this morning all of us every single one of us in this room would be gripped by this reality and moved by it to worship you more If anyone does not know you this morning, O Lord, I pray that you would call them to faith in you, that you would save them. And Lord, for for those who do know you, O Lord, I pray that we will be moved and encouraged and exhorted by this passage to trust you all the more to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.